Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. We want to welcome you today to a special episode of our podcast. We are going to be interviewing Dr. Andy Smith. Unfortunately, Vinny's not going to be able to be with us today. He's feeling a little bit under the weather, but Andy, we want to welcome you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Andy Smith has a bachelor's degree from Harvard University in comparative study of religion. She has her master's of divinity from Union Theological Seminary and a PhD in the history of consciousness from UC Santa Cruz. She's a practicing attorney in disability rights. She's also the coordinator for Evangelicals for Justice, and she's been involved in reproductive justice for over 30 years. She teaches in the academic world uh, full time. Andy has just recently completed a manuscript in a book titled A Justice-Oriented Approach to Ending Abortion, and you may retitle that in the as soon as it gets published, but we'll see. We realize as we talk about the issue of abortion that this is a pretty black and white issue for many people out there. Either the child's a living human being and it's murder to abort it or it's not. On the other side, of course, some simply say it's the right for the women to choose what to do with their bodies. And as we discuss this topic today, I simply wanna say, listen, please listen with an open mind. We're not asking you to put your convictions on the shelf. We're only asking for you to listen. The reality is that the issue is far more complex than I think that most people realize. So. Andy, you've written this book recently, hopefully in getting it published soon, in which you argue that the pro-life versus pro-choice paradigm itself is actually problematic. Would you kind of spell out what you mean by that and explain kind of your thesis on that? Sure. Um, So the typical pro-life versus pro-choice paradigm says the issue is, is the fetus alive or not, right? So the pro-life paradigm says the fetus is alive, therefore abortion should be criminalized. And the pro-choice response is the fetus is not alive. And to me, the issue is not whether or not the fetus is alive. The problem is the assumption that even if the fetus is alive, that abortion must therefore be criminalized. And I think essentially what happens with this paradigm is it mistakes the strategy for the larger vision. In other words, the goal becomes either to make abortion legal or illegal, right? That's the goal. But if we expand our vision and say, isn't the goal something we probably all share to have communities that are life-giving, healthy, where everyone is supported and cared for? Well, then making abortion illegal or illegal could be a strategy towards that goal, depending on your position, right? But that's a strategic decision. It's not the end goal. So when we think of the end goal, then I think it enables us to have more conversations with each other rather than presume someone who doesn't agree with that strategy is necessarily the enemy per se. And I think then when we also focus on the issue of criminalization per se, we start to see the limitations of both positions that are in my opinion, equally problematic. I've been involved in both the pro-life and pro-choice movements and concluded that it, neither were working, really. And we needed a problem that I found was the paradigm itself was creating a big problem. Let's talk about that first idea at, at the beginning here. You point out a great length that criminalizing abortions is actually problematic mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. Can you explain what you mean by that and some of the examples of that? Yeah, so I think the assumption we tend to have, generally speaking, is that the best way to address a problem is to make it a crime. And that's the uh, assumption I think we need to challenge. 
there are many things that are bad, like it's very bad if my <laughs> a relative irritates me, but if they irritate me, I don't think put them in jail, right? I think, hey, I mean, I should talk it out with them. So there's many things that are bad in the world, but we have we tend to have a society that's very based on overcriminalization. And and many Christian groups noted have noted this, particularly I think of prison fellowship, for example have talked at length about we tend to overcriminalize social problems when there may be better ways to address these problems. And criminalization as a strategy creates a lot of unintended consequences that we don't consider. So I, there's a tendency to think that if we have not criminalized it, we therefore think something is okay. <laughs> so I think if we break that equation and just say, here's an issue, what's the best way to handle it? then we can evaluate criminalization as a possible strategy, but we're not limited to that as a way to handle a social problem. And then if we look at issues of criminalization, there's so many issues with that. One, criminalization, generally speaking, is always going to be a strategy that disproportionately impacts people based on race and class, whatever the issue is. And they're the ones who are more likely to be criminalized for a particular issue. And then when we look at abortion in particular, there's a lot of unintended consequences for criminalizing abortion. For one thing, laws that are very restrictive on abortion also then tend to criminalize women who miscarry because they have not properly cared for their child. So many people have been prosecuted and continue to be prosecuted for having miscarriages even when they weren't seeking abortion. And that then has the unintended consequence for women to avoid getting health care. <laughs> if they are having a problematic pregnancy because they have to worry, are they going to be criminalized for having an abortion? It also creates issues for women who have addiction issues because one, there's very few treatment centers that will take women who are pregnant and addiction is, is a disease that actually requires uh, a medical support. But if you want to go get support, you have to worry you're gonna end up in prison rather than actually getting the treatment you need porn addiction. And many studies show that actually uh, making abortion illegal doesn't actually lead to a decrease in abortion rates. And in countries where it's very restrictive, it can actually increase infant mortality, et cetera, because people are avoiding getting health care. But also they're not getting post-abortion contraceptive counseling that they might otherwise get if it was integrated into the healthcare system. So these are all the unintended consequences of criminalization we have to consider. And when we consider this, we don't have to feel that we are giving up on our commitments to life. Rather, we are saying, what is the best way to promote life? Is criminalization the best way? Or there may be another paradigm, for instance, uh, framing this as a health issue rather than a criminal issue, or framing it in a different manner that might actually create strategies that are more effective in promoting life. You just said so much there. I hope the people who are listening kind of stop and go back and listen to that again, because that was really, really good. So first off, you know, Chuck Colson, the founder of Prison Fellowship, made the comment. He said, quote, I'm absolutely convinced that the principal cause of crime in America is the prison system itself. Mm -hmm. And so the prison system itself is already a problem. So criminalizing abortions would, is problematic in and of itself. I'm trying to just kind of repeat what you said to make sure that we really digest that. Secondly, you pointed out that criminalization tends to be racially motivated. Uh, what's the word I want to use here? Is, it has a, a racially disparate impact. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so where poor people and people of color simply don't get the uh, legal representation that they need, that people of, of more affluence can get. Uh, you also noted the fact that if abortion is criminalized, then people don't go get the counsel that they needed or that they need for after abortion care so that they end up getting pregnant again. And if people were to get this care that they need or the contraceptive counseling actually would limit the amount of abortions, but they won't seek that counseling if, if abortion is illegal. Then you also know the fact that people that have miscarriages, this was shocking when I read this in your book and your manuscript, that people that have miscarriages can actually be deemed criminal because they didn't do what was necessary to prevent the miscarriage. And I just thought, oh my gosh, my wife and I have experienced a dozen. Um, I think that number is actually low, but we've experienced a dozen miscarriages. When we lost a child at 20 weeks that we had to give birth to, just to think that we could be criminalized for that, that's like, doesn't make any sense at all. The point though then is, if the pro-life argument is that this is a child, this is a human life, and that we want to do what's in the best interest of life and saving life, then criminalizing abortions actually isn't the best way to go because it doesn't reduce the number of abortions and it doesn't actually care for life. And I think that's so significant. One way to think about it is I think what connotes the current pro-life paradigm is in the end, not a commitment to life, but a commitment to criminalization. Mm -hmm. And so if we rethink criminalization, we can actually have a position that is actually committed to life rather than criminalization. Yeah. And for me, Andy, being pro-life myself, I look at that and I think, you know, when we only argue for legality and illegality of the act, it almost seems like the issue of love is actually put on the table, put off the table as well. It's like, we just want to make this illegal. And so you guys can't do this. And there seems to be no love, like ideas like, well, this is loving for the child. We're trying to save these kids' lives. Yeah, but you're going about it almost in an angry way that doesn't show care for the mothers either and for the women either. And the answer is, okay, if you don't want these children to be aborted, then let's make sure we have in place adoption policies and make sure we have in place care for the mothers. And you point out that 90% of pregnancies that are identified as Down syndrome end up in abortion. And I think that's significant. If we tell these women that we don't want them to abort their children, then you, you point out that we need to have in place systems of care for them so that they know, hey, okay, if I have this child, I'm going to get the care and the help that I need beyond diapers and formula. Well, yeah, and this actually to me speaks to the limitations of the so-called pro-choice position, right? Because the pro-choice position is reduced to your decision to have or not have an abortion that doesn't address all the conditions that give rise to your so-called choices. And these conditions, again, are race and class stratified and mm. people who don't have resources are going to not feel the same options or real choices that they are able to make. And it's been highly annoying to me, for instance, <laughs> I remember when uh, President Clinton was elected to office and he was heralded as a pro-choice president while signing into legislation, welfare legislation that severely restricted resources for women who might want to have children but no one called that an anti-choice legislation, mm. even though that was going to restrict options for women who, who lack resources and need to have children. So having a very narrow view of what choice is, is to me problematic. So when you're talking about disability, um, this is a, a big problem, I think, with the pro-choice movement is it will say, well, that's your choice, but then you're not asking, well, we're in a world that so devalues people with disability 
the disability justice movement calls this the better dead than disabled paradigm that is currently in our society, where it's presumed it would be, you'd be better off dead than to have a disability. Also in uh, countries where there's sex selection with abortions, are we not gonna address patriarchal standards that right. devalue the life of girls and women first too? So to just say it's your choice without saying, but wait a minute, why, why do we have a world in which it feels very difficult to raise children with disabilities because of the lack of resources and where the lives of people with disabilities are so devalued that people don't see a reason to have children with disabilities. So these are the things to me grossly missing in the pro-choice movement, even by the, the standards of pro-choice, right? Like this is supposed to be about justice and rights, but ultimately the pro-choice movement isn't actually centered on justice or rights. It's centered on a very narrow economic view of those who can afford choices should be able to have them, not based on justice for all peoples. Yeah, that's excellent, that's excellent. Now let's talk a little bit about the church and kind of the church's role in this debate and this discussion. You noted that churches often shame women who become pregnant while unmarried and thus to avoid this shaming, they'll seek an abortion. You say it might be necessary to create structures and processes that send the message that single women who do become pregnant will be welcome and embraced. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how can churches address abortion in a way that's not focused just on, on criminalization? Like people might have different perspectives, but is that our only uh, way forward? And one thing that I've noticed is when I've done workshops with people across a political spectrum, and, then, and I've asked, you know, so if we put that, if we suspend the criminalization question, I'm not asking people to give up the position, but just say what else could be done. People have so many creative ideas that they can actually agree on. And so that's again, why I say if we, if we can just at least put criminalization into the realm of strategy that doesn't stop us at least with talking about other strategies, then I think we can get a lot more creation together on things that might actually support the lives of women and children. And so within that context, an issue identified is, the question we ask is, well, why are people, even in churches, because there's high abortion rates amongst evangelicals. So why is that happening? Why are people having abortions, even if they feel that they are ending someone's life? So you have, you could just say you're being terrible, or you can say, well, something's happening. And can we address this something that's happening that's giving rise to this decision. And I think a major thing that gives rise to this decision is people don't want people to know that they are pregnant, right? They don't want it to be known. So then it seems like the response is then we need to create a space where it's okay for that to be known within the church where people can feel supported and, and cared for and still be part of the community so that they don't feel like I have to have an abortion to stay in this particular community. This then gives rise to the issue that we see in our church as well. Aren't you then condoning sin if we do such an approach? But I would suggest, I don't think that's the case. I think we can maybe have a, what I call it kind of a harm reduction approach to when things happen in our church, which is if we were to rethink church is not necessarily the place of saints, but of sinners. And we see this, of course, in Jesus' ministry, Jesus hung around extremely suspicious characters all the time and was asked, why are you hanging around these highly suspicious individuals? And he said, well, I came for the sinners, right? I'm here for people who are messed up. 
So I think if we thought of the church as a place not where we are perfect and we have to pretend that we're perfect and exude perfection, like we never make moral mistakes, but instead that this is a church for highly messed up, screwed up individuals, but collectively we're trying to be better together. And then I think it would be easier for to people to bring up their messed upness <laughs> without saying it's not messed up. Does that make sense? It's not excuses. Yeah, right, it's not messed up, but it's saying, I messed up. How can I get support to be better in the future? Um, with everyone's support, then I think we would actually be better. That's why I think in a certain way, rethinking what churches uh, could be highly helpful in building communities that build life again in our communities. That's excellent. That's excellent. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how much the issues of sexual sins are elevated in, in a local church setting when those same people who are doing the condemning you know, the number of people that are involved in sexual immorality in the, in the church is ridiculous, right? But we only point it out when the girl gets pregnant uh, and it becomes obvious. And then she tries to hide it with an abortion or whatever else it might be. It's like, wait a minute, what, what are we doing here? Uh, as well as the fact that, you know, pornography is rampant in our culture and we can't deny that it's therefore not rampant in our churches too. So you call your kind of outlook or your, what you're advocating for abolition advocacy. Well, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so of course, nowadays with the defund the police and all that stuff, right, another very contentious topic, the issue of abolition has come up, but there's often a misunderstanding of what abolition means, right? Abolition is often framed as a negative project, like let's say in the case of policing or prisons, tear everything down tomorrow. But that's actually not kind of the origins of it. It's actually a positive project. It's what are the systems we could create instead that would make say prisons and policing irrelevant? Like what are the social institutions where we would need? What are the networks? What are the community values? What are the things that we would create? Because if we frame things as a negative way, if you, if you get rid of X, you're likely to replace X with something that's just as bad as X. And this kind of comes from W. Du Bois's work where he said it wasn't enough to end slavery we had to create a whole set of uh, racially equal democratic institutions to replace slavery. Otherwise we would end up with what we ended up with, which is Jim Crow. Right, right. So similarly, I would say with abortion, we can think of it less as a negative project, like what are the laws to criminalize it? And instead say, what do we need to have in place where abortion isn't even something we really think about anymore? Like what what things would we need in our church? What things would we need in society? What do we need to build proactively such that we would look back and say, who even thought about abortion? Because we have all these other things in place that make it even kind of unthinkable. Um, and I think if we, again, focus on the positive, that's something we can kind of all get behind. You know, like that's been my experience, for instance, in my work with kind of creating alternatives to policing in uh, prisons. You know, if we can get a debate on defunding the police and then we'll just hate each other and be done by the end of the day. <laughs> but uh, yeah. when we say, let's create a community care system in which here's a place you can go to address your problem that, without it having to de-escalate into the legal system, pretty much everyone's good with that. Like everyone would like some place to go. Everyone doesn't want everything to be blown up into a big explosion when your next door neighbor might be able to help solve that problem and you can call it a day, right? So in my work in creating community care systems, 
um, people across the, the political divide on what you think about defunding the police all agree on the positive project and we're all can work together in a positive way. So I think similarly in abortion, right, rather than create things on the negative, which tends to create a binary, are you for or against, say, what is the thing we want to build together where we tend to actually do want to, like everyone wants a good world and a good place where we're all cared for. How can we build that vision together? Then it's just much easier to get collective buy-in to all these things, even if we might disagree on a particular legal strategy. That's excellent. So what kind of things in particular then would that, what does that look like? What, can you give us some, some tangible examples of what that looks like? Yeah, well, one thing, I think it can just start from basic conversations. Like if we're in a church, I say, what else can we do? Like in every kind of thing I've, where I've been building alternatives, it just starts with some nice workshops and say, let's think creatively. Let's imagine what this would look like, you know, and not be hampered by it's not doable. <laughs> It's like, what, what would we need to have in place? So I just think even in simple conversations, like let's suspend criminalization by suspending it. I, I'm not saying you have to switch your position. Let's just suspend that for a second and say, what are other ways we could build life-giving communities for women and children in our church? And then from that, see what people are coalescing around. So and things, so I can make, uh, make suggestions of things that have people have brought up, but I don't mean these in a prescriptive way but more to spark our imagination. Because okay. I've noticed when you come up ideas and another group would say, well, I don't know if that will work, but this might work. And then mm. another group has this. And then the more you switch ideas, you can get into um, a period of experimentation, try try things, see what works, learn from your mistakes, try other things. Um, this reminds me of somebody who was saying uh, social justice advocacy tends to often do work from a war paradigm, right? Like you're fighting the enemy, right, right. <laughs> you're fighting the cause. Um, but she said, what if you, we switched our paradigm from war to giving birth, right? That we're collectively giving birth to the world we want. Um, but one, you, start, you stop seeing other people as the enemy and start seeing them as people are helping you create things. And it's hard, it's painful, it's not easy, right? It's not like it's a simple thing but you're focused on the creativity, the thing you wanna build. So I think Jonathan, Jonathan Brooks has a good uh, paradigm for how to look at our work together. When he says, what if we think of ourselves as architects? And that is our goal is building the thing we want. Um, in the process of building things, we might have to get rid of other things, right? Like if you're building a building, you have to clear the space. So it's not like you may not be opposing things or getting rid of things your focus isn't on the getting rid of things, your focus is on the thing you're actually trying to build and create together. So I always feel creation, creativity, building things always brings people together in a more collective way than does just fighting against, against things. So, um, so that's why in the perspective I see kind of abortion abolition is, is an invitation for us to think creatively of the world we would like to bring about. Um, so in that spirit, some of the ideas I've heard for instance, is, as I, uh, Rob, you alluded to before, is creating safe places in the church um, to talk about abortion if someone is faced with that choice in a more judgment-free zone. Because right. um, you notice that one of the things that happens is if someone is in a church and they go to a crisis pregnancy center, they get very directed counseling. And they don't get to explore the idea of abortion. So then the only place they can get non-directed counseling is like with Planned Parenthood, 
So that's just going to skew people in a certain direction. Whereas if people had non-directive counseling in a pro-choice space, right, then there might be more possibilities within a church context for people to choose to choose uh, to not have an abortion. So I think in a certain way, having only directive counseling in a pro-life context can actually drive people. And I've actually seen this personally with people feeling like they had to go to Planned Parenthood because they couldn't fully explore their options within the church context. So having a place to have that and knowing that they'll be supported uh, and still be part of the church. I'm having uh, kind of a clear support for um, people facing the question of whether or not they want to have a child, not just at the point of birth, like as you mentioned, not just formula or diapers, but from now till the child is 18. Right. Like, so it's like people can clearly see a future of if I have a child, my dreams haven't come to an end. You know, someone's going to help me continue finishing up school. Someone's going to help me so I can get this job that I want, right? There's going to be more collective support from now to the end. So I can imagine kind of the future. Um, also, like we have to talk about the reality of sexual and domestic violence in churches. I mean, a lot of teen pregnancies are the result of sexual violence. And as we're seeing with the current report that came out with sexual violence in Southern Baptist churches, I mean, that's going to result in unwanted pregnancies. And we're doing a terrible job addressing that. So I think if we, if we want to address unwanted pregnancies, we can't do that without fundamentally making domestic and sexual violence a key on our agenda for churches addressing these issues. So I could go on at length, but I think the point is not to say this is the recipe. If you do these right. things, it's more to say, let's all collectively get into an imaginary space. And the more we think, the more we'll come up with other ideas that we hadn't even possibly considered before. Right, right. And especially if the church can be that place where these conversations can happen uh, in a safe place and a loving place and a caring place, that's just, that's what the church is for. I mean, uh, what, what better thing there uh, can we imagine? Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. And hopefully it's blessing you. Hey, do us a favor. If this is something that you are digging, if it's helping you, if it's uh, encouraging you, take a second just to like it, give it a review, give it you know, five stars if you think it's five star worthy. Uh, share it with your friends. And we just want to get this out to more people. Uh, this isn't something that we're in for the bucks, but it's something that we want to encourage and equip people with. So do that. Help us out. And now we'll get back to the podcast. So let me see if I can ask you kind of more of a, a pointed question and you can answer it. What do you think this means then for the current debate that's going on in the American public about Roe versus Wade and the possibility of Roe versus Wade being unchanged, being overturned? Uh, how does that affect this conversation? And what, or do you have any particular thoughts on that that you would share? Yeah, because um, I've been in some discussions with people across the spectrum on this and you know, it's either yay or doom and disaster, but, and actually I was talking to people who are on pro-choice, so maybe I can kind of address that perspective. And I was saying, I think, you know, this could actually be a space to start again on this issue because the pro-choice position, I think should, it has to be remembered. The paradigm of Roe v. Wade was actually a conscious decision to frame abortion not as a women's rights issue or not as an issue of reproductive justice, but as a privacy issue that was thought to appeal to more conservatives. So there's nothing based on the paradigm that's actually about respecting the inherent rights of women 
even though it's often articulated hmm. as such. Wow. So that's why, for instance, mainstream reproductive rights groups, um, when it came out in the 70s that public hospitals were sterilizing poor women and women of color without their consent, they refused to take a stand against it hmm. because they said, we don't want to have our uh, choice to be sterilized for white middle-class women be infringed upon this. Hmm. When there's been issues with uh, dangerous contraceptives being promoted, yeah, uh, wow. mainstream groups have stood against that. I was in one group where we were doing informed consent on uh, Depo-Provera and Norplant. And again, we weren't saying you can't do it. We were just saying, these are the side effects before you do this. And we were told to cease and desist, like don't give out basic health information. Which was life-threatening, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, some of these can, can be. And, and, and one group, I'm going to start going on a rant now. I remember okay, that's good. One, one group that you know, was well-known was doing uh, contraceptive counseling and they were in a workshop with us. And they said, we are told that Depo has, has no side effects. And another chapter said, we're not even allowed to tell people what the side effects are because we're told to promote these, these contraceptives by any means necessary. And it's usually black communities that are targeted to receive uh, long acting hormonal contraceptives regardless of the side effects. So this is ridiculous. There's nothing about this that's actually about respecting the autonomy of women, right? This is all population control politics that says that the problem in our society is women of color having too many children. And I've seen uh, some of these mainstream groups actually support anti-immigration policies under the rubric of choice because they say immigrant women are having too many children. And I could go on about a year about the shenanigans that I've seen mm -hmm. in pro-choice groups that have nothing to do about supporting gender, race, or any kind of justice uh, models. So therefore, I would say, here's a chance to maybe go back and say, what would a, a model based on actual justice look like? So instead of a Roe v. Wade privacy model that's so narrow and it's not actually justice-centered, could this be, again, from an abolitionist perspective, begin to say, stop and say, what do we, what, what do we need to actually support justice for, for women and children? And certainly the reproductive justice movement has made that intervention to say, we have to go beyond this choice model and say, what are all the things that are giving rise to the decisions people are forced to make? And we need to get to those root causes rather than be so focused on this one particular decision. So that's why, you know, obviously there's big consequences, but I see it as an opportunity for churches, people supporting reproductive justice and people who don't agree to say, maybe we can have a conversation and say, is there a different model now? Is there a different paradigm that might bring us together and might actually work in promoting life for women and children? You can help with that model and be part of that model without suspending your conviction that it's life. Exactly. Yeah, right. Because that's not as, as much central to the issue now as it is long-term justice and care for everybody involved and for women and children. Exactly. Yeah, I was when I read through your manuscript, I was like, I wasn't surprised, but I was shocked at the same time with how much this is a race, justice, gender oriented issue that, oh, my goodness, this is against women and women of color and how much they're oppressed and further and further and further. And I was shocked by some of it, but then I thought back and I'm like, well, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Right. And there's just a general uh, tendency, I, I think, again, across the political spectrum. Uh, Dorothy Roberts' book speaks to this, and you may not agree with her particular stance, but 
I think the underlying assumption she's saying that's true in this so-called paradigm is that there's a tendency to blame all social issues on the ability of women to reproduce. And so they always become the target for policies regardless. And if we were to step back and say, wait, let's look at all the social, political, et cetera, issues and how they need to be addressed in a more systemic way that don't always target and pathologize reproduction, um, we could end up in a better place. Would you say though, that our country has become so polarized on issues like this, where it's black and white, it's, it's right or left, it's pro-choice or pro-life, that this is gonna be a difficult mountain to climb? You know, I don't think it's a difficult mountain to climb with the change in paradigm. Cause again, I've noticed mm. that with this, like, like and I've had many workshops where people were this way. And when we switched the paradigm, people were together. And that's been true on many issues. And in fact, whenever I see an issue that's sharply polarized, then I say, I feel like we framed the issue wrong. Mm. And I think there's a tendency, this is gonna be a larger issue, particularly with um, how social justice issues, regardless of your position on an issue, gets commodified, becomes marketed. So it becomes profitable to frame the issue in an us versus them way, right? Like we're gonna perpetually be fighting this permanent enemy, whoever the enemy is. And that ensures we will never actually solve the problem, but ensures we will always have a job fighting the problem. And I think just getting rid of that idea, right? Instead of saying, look, if you really wanna change the world, you have to get lots of people who don't agree with you in conversation with you. So we can't win any issue if you, if you throw away half the population as hopeless, you might as well just give up and go, well, keep your nonprofit job, but you're obviously not going to be serious about addressing the issue if you're not willing to talk to half the world's population. So if we get out of that and say, no, the goal isn't to fight people, right? Again, it's to give birth to a different world. And all these people that currently irritate me, who I currently can't stand talking to, are going to be the people who are going to help me create this world in conjunction with God's grace, of course. So but it's God's grace. I mean, what does Jesus show us? Like the right. ability to work with people who seem like people you can never deal with before. And I think Jesus exemplifies that, right? He, 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 didn't, he doesn't come from kind of an us versus them. He says, rethink that. Rethink that the person you think is hopeless is actually the person who's going to help you build this church together. So I actually don't think it's so hard. I think once you disinvest, like suddenly, like, and that's just been my personal experience. Suddenly the conversations happen and suddenly a different possibility exists. It just sounds like the gospel to me though, right? It sounds like once we as Christians embrace the gospel and the, the realization of the radical transformation Christ calls us to, then, and we model that, then it begins to go down the hill and, and have more, more and more people being open to it. So let me, let me give a quote here. And then if you have any last thoughts, you, you note in your book, you said a great number of abortions would not happen in evangelical churches if evangelical women who face an unwanted pregnancy knew they would still be loved, accepted, and supported if their pregnancy and the circumstances behind it were made public. To be loved, accepted, and supported does not necessarily mean accepting behaviors, but it means truly embracing the person while supporting her along a process to choose new behaviors in the future. Yeah, and to summarize again, or to reiterate, if we, if we start to think of the churches as not the place of saints, where we, we show we are morally and ethically superior in all ways, right. 
but embrace the completely screwed up, messed up, flawed folks that we are and are transparent about that. Right. Right. Like we're okay, it's okay for me to tell you how messed up I am because collectively all of us messed up people together yep. with God's grace, we'll learn to be better together. Right. Then I think we actually can transform rather than have kind of a fake performance of transformation that's not real. And that's why we have so many scandals because there's no place for someone struggling with sexual sin to talk about it. They don't have anywhere right. to go. Right. So it's just going to compound and compound and compound. So if we have a place where we, it's okay to say, this is what I'm struggling with. And we say, it's okay to come here and struggle with us together. Um, that doesn't mean you're condoning the behavior, but it's saying we like, all acknowledge that we're not the right people. We're the wrong people mm-hmm. trying to be better together. Right. Right. Wow. So this is so, this is so helpful for me. Just, you know, being in ministry all these years, you think, you know, you just can't talk about this issue because it's just either this side or that side. And uh, neither side seems to, to make a lot of sense. So now you seem to have, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a middle way, but maybe another way of looking at the issue. And it makes sense to me. It makes sense of saying, yeah, the issue is about transforming society and culture so that there can be a place where life and health and reproductive health are, are flourishing instead of criminalizing and pitting oneself against the other and things of that nature. So this has been really, it was really helpful for me to read through the manuscript and I really appreciate this conversation. And again, as we were talking, Andy, I'm listening to everything you're saying going, okay, I'm, I'm connecting because I, I read your manuscript and I'm, I'm following you. I can just tell you, if you're listening to this, you, you're going to have to listen to this two or three times again, because what Andy has said is so significant. And yet, so in some sense it's subtle here and subtle there that you don't need to process what Andy's just simply said here. And hopefully your book comes out soon. We can encourage everyone to buy that and kind of get that in print. But I thank you so much for helping us with this conversation and thank you for what you're doing. And of course, continue to pray for you and the work that you do with disability justice. I get to hear about that from time to time. It really is grieving as I hear about the kind of the injustices in our criminal justice system and our prison system. And thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you, Rob. All right, thanks everyone. I appreciate it. And hopefully uh, stay tuned for some more. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.